Death is the universal human experience. Every community in every land has its cemetery. Ninety times I have stood at the graveside on Isla. I have overseen the burial of male and female, young and old, rich and poor. Death, I am sorry to say, is coming to us all. The fear that hangs over us is a real one. As death is universal, we also know the pain and the sadness that it brings. We have all lost someone, be they a lover, a family member or a friend. People in this room have recently lost loved ones. And we all know that grief cycle of denial and anger, questioning, depression, and then that gradual reluctant acceptance. We all know the bitterness and the gall. Death is the greatest enemy of the human race. And anyone who tries to state that it does not matter is talking hurtful nonsense. What a wonder, what a glory it is then when we hear Jesus utter these words. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Here is a promise that changes everything. Because of Jesus, death is no longer the end, it is the beginning. We no longer live just to die, but we die to truly live. Because of Jesus, when we stand at the graveside and weep, the best is not over, the best is yet to come. This is a promise of such magnitude, such power, it can free us from all fear. It releases us from our anxieties today and empowers us to face our death tomorrow. It is a promise that enables us to really live life to the full. There's something so immediate about those words, isn't there? When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is pointing out that this hope is only available through him. It can be found nowhere else. But he's also letting us know that it is available right now. We don't just have to wait for resurrection someday in the future. We can know the source of resurrection in our lives today. We can be assured of it in the present. For the Christian who knows Jesus, eternal life has already begun. And to prove this wonder to be true, Jesus performs a sign. It is the seventh of the seven signs in John's Gospel. This is the climax. This is the one where the glory of Jesus is made manifest in all its fullness. As we have read through this Gospel, we have seen how the miraculous signs that Jesus performed point us forward to who Jesus is and what he has come to achieve. And here we are in no doubt as to the meaning of the sign. Jesus is the conqueror of death and the giver of life. It is the greatest news in the world. When Lazarus walked out of that tomb, it was proved for all to see that Jesus has the ultimate authority over humanity's greatest enemy. As we come to this rich passage, there is so much that we could draw upon. We could pour over it for hours. But in our time together, I want to make three simple points. 
I want us to see the courage of Jesus in confronting death. The compassion of Jesus as he stands at the graveside. And then his awesome creative power. Courage, compassion, creation. Let's have a look. There has always been something that has bothered me about this story. Why does Jesus wait two days before travelling to his friends? As a minister, I have been trained that when the phone rings and you hear of the death of a congregation member, you go straight away. Don't wait, just go. And Jesus is more loving and compassionate than I am. And that small family in Bethany clearly meant the world to him. So why does it tell us in verse 6 that on hearing the terrible news, Jesus waited two days before moving? Is this just me or does that bother you as well? On reflection, there are a few possible reasons. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus knew what was going to happen to Lazarus in advance. In fact, if you work out the timings, Lazarus died just after the messengers had been sent. He'd already gone when Jesus heard the news. So maybe Jesus thought, why rush? That is hardly adequate, is it? If you read further in verse 4, it tells us that Jesus knew that through Lazarus' death, God would be glorified. Perhaps by Jesus waiting, it would make it plainer for all to see the miracle that was about to take place. I mean, after being dead for four days, there was no doubt that Lazarus was resurrected, not just resuscitated. This must be nearer to the truth. In verse 15, Jesus tells us that the delay would lead more people to trust him, to truly believe. The frustration that we feel at the two-day delay in this story surely highlights who is in control here. It is Jesus not of any of the other characters. In life, there'll be lots of delays when we wish God would act a little bit quicker, but we all need to learn to remain trusting in him and trusting his timings. These are some of the reasons why Jesus might have waited. They all make sense. But there is one other reason I want to share with you, a reason that shows us something important. Could it be that Jesus spent those two days praying. I think there's evidence for this. Let me explain. In verse 8, we discover that Jesus' disciples were frightened of going to Bethany. Bethany was a village just two miles from Jerusalem. It was in easy reach of the holy city. As soon as Jesus arrives in Bethany, all the religious leaders there would know that he was there. Now think about what's been going on in the previous chapters of this gospel. In chapter 7, Jesus went to Jerusalem and learned that there was a plot to kill him. By the end of that chapter, guards had been sent to arrest him. In chapter 8, there was a heated debate, which finished with the crowd trying to stone him. In chapter 10, which we read last week, Jesus went back to Jerusalem and again the rulers tried to arrest him and the crowd tried to stone him. Do we get the hint? Jesus is not going to get a warm reception when he draws near to the city again. And the disciples certainly got this. We can see from Thomas's brave comment in verse 16 that the disciples fully expect trouble if they go to Bethany. 
Indeed, they expect to face death. Let us also go that we may die with him, Thomas said. Surely this grim prospect would be cause for a time of prayer. But there is more evidence in this story that Jesus spent those two days praying. When Jesus does finally get to Lazarus' tomb in verse 41, he specifically thanks his father for having heard the prayers that he had already prayed. Now there is no mention of him praying anywhere else in this story. So those prayers must have been offered in this two-day delay. So what was Jesus praying about? What kept him in such urgent petition for two days instead of rushing to be with his dearest friends? Well, clearly he was praying to his father for Lazarus. But from the wider context, I think he must have also been praying for wisdom and guidance on his own plans and movements. These two things were linked together. Jesus knew that in travelling to confront Lazarus' death, he would also be confronting his own. It's a bit like us when we're sitting in church at a funeral. Yes, we spend time thinking about our loved one who has just passed. But we also find ourselves so often in in a bit of a world of our own, confronting the fact that one day we too will die. One day we will be gathered, people will be gathered in church just like this for us. I think that's a bit of what's going on here for Jesus. What Jesus was about to travel and to do for Lazarus would become the principal reason that the Jewish leaders wanted him killed. And Jesus knew it. Jesus is literally about to walk into the jaws of death, Lazarus's tomb and his own. And this is what that cryptic comment in verses 9 and 10 is about. Jesus says to his disciples that there are 12 hours of daylight. In other words, if they stick with him, the light of the world, they'll be kept safe. They will not stumble. But those hours are counting down. Darkness is coming. The darkness of Jesus' own death. Travelling to Bethany was going to speed that hour. I always find it incredible when we see in scripture that Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Jesus was human, human in every way like us. He would have naturally balked at death just like we do. And we see his fear most clearly of all in Gethsemane. It took great courage for Jesus to walk the way of the cross. Where did that courage come from? Well, I suspect that it came from moments like these. Moments where he spent two whole days in urgent prayer to his father. It came from his father assuring him that life lay the other side. I imagine Jesus realising at the end of those two days of prayer that what he was about to do for Lazarus, the father would also do for him. It was a promise. And this is where his courage comes from in the face of death. It comes through prayer and the promises of God. And I commend them both to us all. Jesus defeated death by courageously walking to Jerusalem and deliberately laying down his life. That is why he is worthy of our worship. Let us realise 
that as Jesus went to confront the death of his friend Lazarus, he was also courageously confronting his own. So Jesus was human. He felt emotion. It required courage for him to go to a village just two miles outside the city of Jerusalem. And that feeling of emotion is now going to be seen in the next part of the story. We're now going to focus on the compassion of Jesus. The word compassion literally means to suffer with someone. And we're going to see Jesus doing precisely that. On arriving in Bethany, Jesus meets a crowd of mourners. These would have been the friends and the relatives who travelled from all over the surrounding region. Grief is not as private in the Middle East as it is here. People are not expected to hide their emotions or pretend that they are okay. In many ways, they have a much healthier attitude to these things. At Middle Eastern funeral processions, there is weeping and wailing and a backdrop of sad music being played. The bitterness of death is let out rather than bottled up. You know, as human beings, we should never feel guilty for the emotions that we have when we are grieving. It's always better to talk about them and let them out. Among all those mourners, Mary and Martha come running up to Jesus and they arrive at his feet with the telltale question of grief. If only, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. How often we say that when we're grieving ourselves. If only the doctors had acted quicker. If only I hadn't said that before they died. If only we'd spent more time together. These unanswerable questions, this bartering with our soul, is a recognised part of the grieving process. But it pulls us apart, doesn't it? Through questions like these, our anguish comes pouring out, and we're all the same. But what is fascinating and hugely reassuring is that Jesus is moved as well. As we read on, there are two visceral emotions that come tumbling out of him. They are anger and sadness. In verse 33 we read that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now to be honest with you, the NIV translation which we use gives a pretty weak translation here. What we actually have are the strongest emotions attributed to Jesus in the whole of the New Testament. What we have here is anger. The Greek word translated deeply moved is the same word that Greeks use for the snort of a horse in a war or a race. In most Greek writings, this word denotes outrage or fury or, or red-hot indignation. Honestly, as Jesus stands there amid the mourners, as he sees and hears and feels the pain that grief causes, he rages against death. He's not angry with Mary. He's angry with death. It is the complete opposite of all that God intended. Its devastation is the opposite to God's joy. Jesus is angry with death, just like we are when we are grieving. He's also sad. Oh, so sad. Verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. 
It is the shortest and the most poignant verse in the whole Bible. Through Jesus, we have a God that became human. He feels our grief just as we do. This really is an extraordinary moment. Here is the almighty creator God weeping like a baby at the grave of his friend. Truly, Jesus is the God who bears our sorrows. Truly, it is here that we discover what God is really like. Jesus is pained by death. It angers and saddens him in equal measure. And death does this to Jesus because he loves. He loves us and he loves his world. Remember, the word compassion means to suffer with someone. Jesus came from heaven to earth to suffer with us. And he suffered so much that he decided to suffer for us. He would give up his life to death so that death like this would be no more. In verse 37, the crowd make a telling comment. Having seen his anger and his sadness, they question, see how he loved him. But could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? How that question must have chimed with Jesus' own spirit in that moment. We have said that as Jesus went to Bethany to confront the death of Lazarus, he's also confronting his own death. In travelling to Bethany, he is bringing the cross closer to hand. And in just a few short weeks, Jesus will be asked again why he could not save himself from death. If you are the Messiah, come down from there, the crowds will shout. But we know that it was only through death through Jesus sharing in this common fate of all humanity, that he could save us from it. The price of sin had to be paid, and Jesus was going to willingly pay it. So in this passage, we can see clearly that Jesus is the full revelation of the compassionate God. He knows our anger. He knows our sadness. He has stood by the grave himself and experienced it, just like we do. And that is incredibly good news. Because it means that we can always turn to him in our struggles and know that he cares. And know that he understands. And if you're grieving today, I really encourage you to turn to Jesus in prayer and let his wounded heart comfort you. So we thought of the courage of Jesus in going to Bethany, moving towards the cross. We thought of the great compassion of Jesus as he stands at the graveside. But of course, gloriously, this story ends with a display of creative power. After shedding his tears, Jesus moves to the tomb of his friend. And as he stands before it, verse 38 tells us that once more he is overcome with this strong emotion. Everything within him again rages at the death that he is confronting. But now is the time for action. He asks for the stone to be rolled away. Immediately, thoughtful Martha complains. She fears the terrible odour of death will come seeping out. In the Middle East, bodies are buried on the day of the death, precisely to stop that smell. But Jesus robustly responds to her protest with these words. Did I not tell you 
that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. That is it. There, in a nutshell, is the point. Jesus has come to Bethany to display the glory of God. Do you remember that great title that he gave himself? I am the resurrection and the life. I am. I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am throughout scripture is the direct personal name of God. Whenever it is announced, you know that the Lord of heaven is near. And this is what we see next. Jesus had the courage to travel to Bethany. He's demonstrated the compassion to care about those who are suffering there. But now he's going to display the power to put it right. The divine power of God. The Jews had always worshipped God as the creator. The one who made all things. And if that was the case, then he also had the power to recreate life. Only God has that power. No human being could bring back a four-day dead person to life. Only God can do that. And here in front of the crowd and just two miles from his enemies in the city, Jesus claims to be that God. Of that, there is no doubt. He calls for the stone to be rolled away and he immediately thanks his father for hearing his prayers that he prayed in those two days of delay. How does he know that? Well, there's no smell, is there? Confidently, Jesus moves on to call Lazarus to come out from the grave. Lazarus, come out! An extraordinary command with an extraordinary response. When God created the world, he simply spoke and life came to be. Here Jesus speaks again and new life the dead receive. This is a display of incredible creative power, all designed to convince the crowd of who Jesus is and the truth of his teaching. And surely it can convince us as well. Jesus' final instructions are telling. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus is unbound from the clothes of death, just as we are unbound from our fears when we put our trust in Jesus. Now, of course, Lazarus would die again. He's not still with us. For Lazarus, the process of death was just reversed a little but he would become ill again and die a later day. But this miracle was an extraordinary sign of the great power of God and a little glimpse into what Jesus would do next. The Bible tells us that when God made this world, he was then upset by the pain that death caused. So he made a plan to recreate it. One day, all who believe in Jesus will be raised from death to take their place in the new world. The resurrection of Jesus would be the first act of that new creation. When Jesus died and rose, he didn't reverse death. He went through it. He went through it to a new life, the other side. A resurrection life that he promises to all those who follow him. So to conclude, we all live within this world of death. 
We all know the pain that it causes. But do not fear. Hope is at hand. God has made a solution. Jesus courageously went to the cross where he died to deal with the sin that brought about death in the first place. He did that because he had great compassion on each and every one of us. He deeply, deeply loves us. And because of what Jesus has already achieved, we will know God's creative power in our lives. He will see us through death to life the other side. It is so sure we have eternity now. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That promise changes everything.